Okay. <clears throat> okay. Okay. We can do this. We can do this. Okay. If we, as the body of Christ, are going to really be different, if we um, are not going to be merely superficially different, but really different, if we understand Christian life change as defined by God as more like gutting the house than painting the cabinets, then we're going to have to be really deeply transformed, especially in the big things, especially in how we use things like money, sex, power, and time. Christianity can't affect everything but those four things. It has to affect the biggest things. And one of them is power. And I'm coming here today with the assumption that all of us have some amount of it. Whether it is merely over some of your own decisions, or whether it is over children, or whether it is over some area of your work, or whether whatever it is, almost, almost everybody has some scope of authority, or interacts with authority, or may yet still have some scope of authority. And how we use power is incredibly important in the kind of people we are. And in my life so far, there's two things I indisputably think I know about power. And the first is that I don't like people telling me what to do, that I have an innate instinct to rebel against power, right? That's, I learned that more early on, uh, and it's still with me. And then the other is, is that the more I live, the more I recognize, listen, you can't get away from authority. Authority is practically necessary. The minute you get three people in a room, somebody emerges as a leader, even if it's not official. Even if the person doesn't have a title, there are always emerging leaders within any group of people, even if it's two. There is always going to be a leadership structure. There's always going to be a social structure that will naturally develop among every group of people. There has never been, and I don't think there will ever be, a truly, absolutely egalitarian society in which there were no structure socially at all, and everybody just was independent, naturally so, and immediately, instinctually, and completely worked perfectly with everybody else, and that was just how everybody lived. Because practically, that doesn't happen. And we can say all we want with our little post-60s disestablishment little attitudes about how we should just always attack power until we real until what happens? We grow up and we realize that we have to take a position of authority and power because we have a job to do and there's misery around us or there's work to be done or there is need to be delivered to and we have to move forward and we have to herd people in a direction even if it's our two kids. And authority has to be taken, power needs to be used, and it has to be exercised. You can't get away from it. You can be as idealistic as you want to be, but as Christians, one of the things that we're going to have to realize is that you can't just be annoyed about the idea of power and authority. The, God doesn't seek to undermine the very idea. He, he seeks to redeem the use of it. Scripture everywhere, from beginning to end, affirms that authority is right. 
And that the rightness of authority is actually even bigger than a certain amount of misuse of it, right? Remember Romans 13? You've got a bad Roman government with nasty Caesars. And what does Paul say? It's instituted by God. At least in some sense, you obey it. But one of the, th- um, Mary Westfall wrote a book not too long ago, I think it was called Suspicion and Faith, where he was critiquing some of the postmodern philosophers who were attacking the whole idea of power. That everything anybody ever does is a will to power, and we just need to reject that. And he said, you know what, you guys are brilliant, but you're about 3,000 years late. Because what most of these writers were critiquing first was religion. They were following Nietzsche and critiquing religion. And one of the things he said was, listen, <laughs> All you're doing is copying Jeremiah. <laughs> I mean, the, the best resources for the critique of religion are in the Bible. All you got to do is read it. I mean, that's the, there's a whole section called the prophets. It's like 400 pages long. It's right in the Bible. Critiquing religion gone awry, authority used wrong, religion used to control people, religion used to push people in the wrong directions, to make them self-righteous, to pit the rich against the poor or the poor against the rich. It's all right there in the Bible. (laughs) And so God is not just seeking to affirm authority. He's also seeking everywhere to redeem authority and power. And he did it probably clearest in Jesus. Now, One of the things you need to realize is I am not the great perfect expert on authority. My daughter Rachel drew me some pictures the other day, and this was one of them. (laughs) So, as perhaps sometimes a misuser of authority, let us with fear and trembling kind of work through what happens in this passage and outline it, contrast it, and learn from it. Um, now, we need to listen to this because we're going to look at a bad example, right? It's Solomon, bad exa- or Rehoboam, bad example. So you got to look at this and you got to think, here's why you're listening. We're listening for warning and we're listening for diagnostic, right? We're going to look at somebody who lived ugly, evil, and foolish, and that's going to be a warning to us. And the point of hearing a warning is motivation. I do not want to end up like this. Right? So we're listening for him, but we're also listening for diagnostics because when we look at how, what he did, we can look for those things in our life paralleled and we can say, okay, if this symptom is there, then maybe this sin is there, then maybe this idol is hiding in here and I need to go after it. So that's why we're listening for those two things. So the first, so I want to say there's, there's basically four evidences of the self-centered, arrogant, use of power in this passage. Okay, now what jumps out to everybody the first time you look at this passage is he didn't listen to the old people, right? And that's really, uh, there's probably some people over 16 in the room thinking that that's what this sermon should really be about, is listening to the older people. Let me just tell you, this sermon should be about that. One of the things that is the first mark of Rehoboam's arrogance and downfall is his rashness. And is a misunderstanding of who he is. And it's, a, it's a, a belief that he knows more than he does, and he is bigger than he is. Because the two people, the two groups that it would be wise for him to listen to, would be who? The elders, but there's another group he didn't listen to that he should have. The people. 
In this passage, there's two groups that it, it makes very clear he should have listened to. Twice it said he should have listened to the elders. Once it said he should have listened to the people. Because the elders were actually wise. The people were actually experiencing what was going on. And Rehoboam had neither the experience nor the wisdom. But what did he do? He listened to the people who told him what he wanted to hear. That's what he did. And that's what rashness does. It makes faster decisions. It takes in only the data we want to know. It doesn't deal with the complexity of the situation. And it goes forward with the way we already want to go. Which is almost always the self-centered direction. And to combat this, you've got to listen to the people you don't want to listen to. Right? Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father, Solomon, during his lifetime. Now, why add during his lifetime to that? Right? Hebrew narrative is always really short. Why add another phrase that you don't need? If he served Solomon, then he served Solomon during his lifetime. You see, what he does, because in the next verse he says, it says that he, he talked to the young men who had lived during his lifetime. Meaning, the two, the two people, the difference wasn't just one was old and one was young. It's that one group had lived out through Solomon's life, and the other, pe- the other guys he consulted had only lived out through his life. And the key issue here was experience, because the reason the elders were saying what they were saying and the reason the people were saying what they were saying was for the same reason that these guys didn't know because they were too young to know it. Which leads us to the second thing, which is unreasonableness. I did look up to make sure that was a real English word, and it is. Now, I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to end up with strategy or something. So, unreasonableness is, is basically this idea, what's reasonable must be what I want. Have you ever felt that way? Right? We lose our ability to discern a reasonable request from a cop-out or rebellion. The minute we get unreasonable and somebody asks something, we can't really tell anymore whether it's a reasonable request or whether they're rebelling against our authority or copping out. Now, so here's Rehoboam, he's king, and the people come, they say, hey, give us a break, right? Basically cut our taxes and quit working us so hard. Now, is that rebellion or is that a reasonable request? Right? Rehoboam's the king. He's supposed to tell him to do what he wants. So technically it's rebellion, right? He's, they're basically saying, listen, we'll give you authority if you relinquish a bunch of your authority. But is it a reasonable request? Well, you see, what the elders knew was that for 40 years, about a third of the year, most all Israelite males had been doing conscripted labor for like 40 years. And they had built the temple. They had built Solomon two palaces in which there wasn't even any utensils that weren't gold in the summer home. They had built him a fleet of trading ships that had nothing to do with the defense of the country. They had everything to do with the accumulation of his wealth. They had built up a number of cities to be fortified, put hundreds and hundreds of horses in, moved all this stuff, done all this work, built up the whole country, and now it was well beyond. They'd built up a wall all around Jerusalem. It was well beyond just doing the work of security now. It was really just, this work was really just about aggrandizing Solomon. And now Rehoboam comes on the scene— Was he just going to do more of this? (laughs) 
right? The king, it explicitly says in the scriptures before this, that the king exists to unify the people and to lead them out unified into battle for the security of the nation. That's their job. Their job is to be one of the brothers, but the brother that leads the people to secure the nation. Solomon had done all of it. The work of security had been accomplished. <laughs> all that was left was more summer homes. And you see, if you had, were an elder and been around in the palace for 40 years and watched what Solomon had done, or if you'd been out there being a grunt laborer, leaving your family for a third of the year to build up one of these cities or to sail on one of these ships, you knew darn well that this was a perfectly reasonable request. But if you'd been isolated in the palace, barking out orders since you were eight, telling everybody to do whatever you want, and they had to do it as fast as they could, and never had been among the people, and never had really worked this out, and never had really been in charge of anything— then of course, this would just sound like rank rebellion. Because what did Rehoboam want to do? Be greater than his daddy. What was that going to require? 40 more years of conscripted labor. You see, when— And so what happens is this is really a failure of perspective. It's when we lack the imagination anymore to really know where the other person is even coming from. And so, therefore, what's right is what we can see and what we want. Now, the minute you, those two intellectual failures happen, you get the external failures. Um, and the first one is usually some kind of oppression because your rebellion gives me the right to do what I need you to to get you back in line. Right? The minute I know you're rebelling against me and I have right authority, then I can do what I want to or need to to get you back in place. So he promises, listen, my father would do this. I'll scourge you with scorpions. You're back in line. I'm going to whoop you. Right? And then the fourth is escalation. After, um, after everybody goes back to their own hometown, what is Jer you know what Jeroboam does? He says, I'll show you. And after this incident where they, they actually kill one of his officials, he goes and he, he rallies all the men of Israel together. Well, all the men of Judah and Benjamin, which is like 180,000 soldiers to go up and fight against all the other tribes. Right? It says this, When Rehoboam arrived in Jerusalem, he mustered the whole house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 fighting men, to make war against the house of Israel. Right? So there's 10 tribes that went this way. He's got these two, and now he's going to create a civil war. Right? You're not going to obey me? You're not going to do what I say? You're going you're gonna to leave? We'll see about that. He's going to escalate this con conflict to full-scale war. He is in about a couple of months going to destroy what has been built in this land for at least three generations of kings even more. Because, dang it, nobody talks to me that way. Now, and then God tells him to go. <laughs> it's, pretty, it's like a Gandalf moment in The Hobbit. You know, this, this prophet shows up in the two, two armies. He's like, dudes, go home. God says you're not allowed to fight. Um, this is his doing. And they go, oh, righto. And they just go home. <laughs> That's awesome. So there's these, at least, these, now listen, these are not all the symptoms of pride and self-centeredness in the use of power and authority gone bad. These are just the four that we're told about in this particular passage. Now, you might be sitting there shaking your head at this silly little king, but here's what I would want to say. If you're anything like me, I would want to bet this, that you did between two and four of these in your last argument. 
That's what I would want to bet. Either with your kids or with your parents or with a coworker or with your spouse or whatever, I would bet you did between two and four of these in your last argument. Think about it. Rashness. Have you been listening to your self-justifying buddies instead of your pastor or spouse or more godly friends in, to resolve your marriage conflicts or parenting conflicts or so on, right? I cannot tell you how many marriages begin to die on ladies' night over martinis or at the hunting camp when the dudes are all sitting around talking about how bad they've got it. And the ladies and the dudes are going, oh, I mean, you don't deserve that. You don't deserve—no, that's crazy. But that's what happens, right? What are you doing? You're, all you're doing is being rash. You're listening to the wrong people. Do you know one of the, one of the most common um, situations in which wives leave husbands out, which is, of course, now more common than husbands leaving wives, percentage-wise? You know what it is? She changes jobs. Why is that? Whole new set of advisors. Right? You go in, make new friends. Right? And they may or may not be good advisors. <clears throat> and everybody wants to be told that you're great, you're fantastic, you're right. Isn't that what a good friend does? Friends out there, that is what a good friend does. In here, that is not what a good friend does. In here, a good girlfriend points an unhappy wife to her husband and then goes and tells her husband to go kick the pants off of the other dude if he's really doing something. In here, we point people back together and say, well, let's, let's figure out how we can work it out. Let's figure out how we can get somewhere from here. Only in very extreme cases of things like drug abuse, physical abuse, and, I mean, where somebody needs to be protected, then we invite them into our house immediately for protection. But other than that, in the basic selfishness, craziness, oh, please give me an excuse to do whatever I want situations, we point people back to where their duty is, not away from it. And there's just a ton of rashness going around. Or the second one is unreasonability. How often do you move forward with how you're feeling without really reflecting or imagining how your opponent is feeling? I find this to be the most difficult one for me. Um, let me just call it for present circumstances the To Kill a Mockingbird principle, right? If you've, uh, there was a guy in my last church in Florida who was like cousins with Harper Lee. His name was Robert Lee. So the, the person who wrote this. Um, if you go online and you try to find the origin of the saying— um, to really understand a person, you have to walk a mile in their shoes. What you'll find is nobody has any idea where it came from. <laughs> no idea where it came from. And here's why, I think. It doesn't take a rocket scientist to come up with that saying. That's why. <laughs> uh, it's probably come up with independently in various cultures and various places when people realize that conflict often comes from a lack of imagination in how the other person's really feeling or where they're really coming from. And I find this happens constantly. Alexi and I will have an argument about something. Who's doing this chore? Should this child be parented this way? How are we going to work this schedule? It's a, it's a fact or it's an organizational-based argument. But the real conflict is in how each of us are feeling about it and where we're coming from. It isn't just an issue of feelings because the dudes are like, oh, come on, please do not say well, you must, to resolve conflict, just talk more about your feelings. That's not what I'm saying. 
that doesn't hurt. But, but the, the issue is partly is understanding context. Where are you coming from? And where are they coming from? Because you're coming from different places. You have been starring in the play of you all day. Okay? Your spouse or your child or your coworker has been starring in the play of them all day. In fact, all their life. And they are not coming from the same place as you on any particular issue. Let me give you a quick example of this. Um, a few months ago, before I got here, I had one of these women are crazy moment. It's just a great face, baby. Um, where Alexi and I were coming back from uh, Fort Walton Beach. We'd flown back and um, I think we were with family or something. I can't remember. But we're driving from Fort Walton Beach home and it's like 9.30. So our kids clonk out immediately in the van. And so we have like an hour drive through Pine Woods, you know, just a nice quiet drive. And I'm thinking, this is going to be fantastic. We're just going to drive, have a little conversation, you know, and it'll just be a night. Because, you know, we'd have kids in the plane all day, you know? And so we're driving along, and Alexi asks me how I'm feeling about Madison. How are you feeling about the whole— because we don't have a house, you know? So, and I'm just like, you know, baby, I'm just not thinking about it. And she's like, well, okay, but, you know, you're thinking about it. It's like, no, not really. I'm not—I'm just not thinking about it. When we get to Madison, I'll think about Madison. Right now we're in Florida, I'm thinking about Florida. I'm just— I'm not going to think about it till I, till I get there. It's just, you know, anxiety and whatever I don't need. And she's like, well, it's not really emotionally healthy, is it? You know, I mean, like, she didn't say it just like that, but that was kind of the idea. Like, you know, you ought to be, it's our future. I mean, you should think about it a little bit. Now, here's the issue. That started a bit of an argument, and it really ruined our drive. It just ruined our whole hour. But here was, here was the issue. You see— both of us were coming from a certain idea. Now, Le now, Lexi was coming from the idea that it's reasonable to talk a little bit about your future when it's about to happen. Okay? <laughs> she was kind of coming from that perspective. And the idea that, um, you know, sh shepherding our children's emotional turmoil in a move is going to be partly related at least to our own emotional states in this move. The move is imminent. We should talk about this. Okay? Now, from a certain perspective, that can be seen as reasonable. Now, I, <laughs> I come from a place where I, I work in an organization where I'm in charge of a lot of different things, and I'm juggling them all. And if I'm thinking about this one while I'm trying to do this one, it creates stress, and I can't do this one because I'm doing this one. I have to compartmentalize these things so that I can give my full attention to each thing. So it, it, and, 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 and when it comes to the future, that's not even on the table. The future is only on the table in terms of immediate planning. If I have to plan for something, it's on the table. But the future is open, and I can't—there's a lot of things I can't control. So spending lots of time coming up with contingencies that I'll never need isn't the best use of my emotional resources. So I don't do it. Now, added to that, I'm on the plane, and I was listening to an audio version of the Screwtape Letters, Letter 15. Now, in Screwtape Letters, Letter 15, C.S. Lewis is talking about how— um, and if you're not familiar with the Screwtape Letters, it's, it's supposed to be this fake correspondence between demons about how to tempt and corrupt Christians. And the thing Screwtape, the like, advisor demon is saying, he says, listen, the most important thing for you to do is to keep the Christian from living in the present. Now, this is actually right, and it's a great letter. I just put it up on my blog. You should go read it, okay? But, but, the point is context, right? And so he's saying, you know, we, it's either make people live in the past— or keep them anxious or hopeful about the future. 
If they're hopeful about the future, you can always dash their hopes in the future and, you know, make them mad at God. Or if they're scared about the future, you can terrorize them from all these things that'll never happen. It's fantastic. So get people living in the future. It's the worst thing for them spiritually. Do it as soon as possible and as much as possible. So I had just listened to that letter. <laughs> right? And I had been just thinking of the plane. That's brilliant. You know, I need to— And it was just confirming in me this whole idea, you got to live in the present, right? So I get in the car with my wife, and we start having this argument. And it occurs to me, about 30 minutes in the argument, and I'm already this deep in the muck, that the, you know, the issue here, she hadn't heard what I listened to on the plane. And I'm way too committed now to tell her that this is the real problem. And I mean, eventually we talked about it, but it was just like, I mean— when you, if you would have stepped back, if you would have, if you would have had a bird's eye view of her day and her week coming into that discussion, and you had a bird's eye view of my day coming into that discussion, you would have been like, oh, ooh, this could be bad. <laughs> and it wasn't because we don't love each other or don't care about each other or that I wasn't interested in our future or that Alexi likes to be, you know, just feeds anxiety about the future. She doesn't, you know, any more than anybody else. The point is, we were coming from different contexts. We both had imagination failures of where the other person was coming from, and therefore we had a big argument. Because we were both being, we would probably argue to varying degrees, unreasonable about the issue, even though it wasn't, a, the, the solution wasn't in how we were feeling, and the solution wasn't in how we were reasoning. It wasn't the chick thing or the dude thing. It was the context thing. It was the pride and arrogance thing that led to the conflict. Because we just failed in our imagination of where the other person was coming from and how we were thinking through and dealing what was happening with what was— and there's a lot more details to that, of course. But unreasonability is just—I just feel like it's rampant. I feel like it's under so many of our arguments, and I just feel like it can be exploited so badly in our lives. And, and Rehoboam just, just didn't get where these people were coming from. He just didn't know what it was like to be a mom and to be in the middle of an agricultural season and to have your husband called away 60 miles for four or five months. Successively, a couple years apart at a time for a, almost their entire adult life. If he would have really understood that, he may still have not had sympathy, but he wouldn't have been an idiot. The fourth one is—I well, should probably take that one down. Well, I, okay, I'll just put the next slide then. <laughs> the, the next one is oppression. And you'd be like, well, I don't oppress. I don't oppress people. They do that like in, I don't know where, but bad places. Okay, but— in your last argument, did you make the person pay somehow for disagreeing with you? Was there a price to be paid for disagreeing with you in your last argument? I mean, you may not have put the person in shackles and thrown them in the basement, but we have a way of communicating our displeasure. Right? You're not free to disagree with me. And if you will not concede in open debate, you will be worn down through the slow decay of time. <laughs> Sorry, that's two Lord of the Rings quotations in one sermon. That's probably too many. <laughs> and listen, this isn't just couples. This happens at work with employers and employees. And this happens with students and kids. 
with their parents and parents with their children. And then escalation. When your argument was done, if you lost, were you thinking, this isn't over? I didn't get beaten today. I retreated today to gather my troops to fight again. Have you ever noticed there are some arguments you have every month? Or every couple of months? Certain arguments that keep coming up. It's because nobody really agreed when the argument was over. <laughs> they just were ready for the argument to be over. And so they just kept doing what they were doing and knowing it would come up again and we'd just fight harder about it that time. Or we were looking to get more data. Like if I have an argument about my wife about how <clears throat> I don't clean up enough around the house, I'll retreat from that argument until the end of the week where I wash the dishes every day and clean the house twice. And then, baby, we'll bring that baby back up. <laughs> now, what do you mean I don't clean? I did, I did the dishes every day this week. I swept. I cleaned the house twice. What are you talking about? Right? I look for the opportune moment. That's wrong. That's wrong. I think one of the important things here is contrast. Sorry. Um, <laughs> One of the important things here is contrast. Now you could say, okay, we're talking about kings, and so this is King Rehoboam. And if you want a good king to contrast him with, let's talk about David. Let's not talk about David. Let's talk about a better king than David. Let's talk about King Jesus or King God. You see, one of the things you would not think, see, I would not think intuitively that we should imitate God's use of power. You wouldn't think that would be for us humans to do, right? You would think if they're—theologians have talked about the difference between communicable and incommunicable attributes. That's a theology word, okay? Have you stopped listening yet? <laughs> the, the difference is simply communicable attributes are things you can do too. Are, they're found in your experience also, and therefore you can imitate God. And in, incommunicable attributes are ones that are just God, God alone, and you can't do anything with them, okay? And you would think that— the use of power, the divine use, is that something we would not imitate because God is sort of God and we should be careful. And that's true to a certain extent. But you see, part of the issue here is, is that Jesus actually invited his disciples to use power like he used power in his earthly ministry. So God has intentionally given us a parallel example in the person of Jesus. Now, when you, and so when you look at rashness and you read through the scriptures, what you find? There's no rashness in God. There is none, right? Remember when he decided to destroy all the nations of Canaan? And you go, ooh, I don't like that. Well, do you remember what he said? Remember he said to Abraham? He said, listen, these folks have been provoking my wrath for so long, but you're actually going to go down to Egypt. And he didn't tell them, but for a half a millennia more, Okay? They had already done enough that God had made the executive, judicial, right decision that they already deserved his annihilating wrath, but he was going to wait another half millennia graciously to allow something to happen. Right? Now, you might say that, you might still not like it, and you might still think that's wrong, but it's not rash. Right? And when it comes to oppressiveness or um, unreasonableness, God is just 
he's just not unreasonable. He invites us to be reasonable, and that's the Isaiah quote. He says, listen, now obviously this is literal. He says, come let us reason together. But, but this is true of the prophets all the way through. He's always pleading with human beings to be reasonable. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. They're, they're red as crimson, they shall be white as well. He's basically saying, listen, let's just, let's be serious. Don't pretend like you can come in and worship however you want and then just live however you want to and think that we're okay. That's crazy. So come on, let's, let's think, let's be reasonable, right? God is extremely reasonable. And then God is the one who frees from oppression. The whole, one of the great themes of Scripture is redemption in the terms of liberation. God liberates the enslaved person. He liberates the Israelites from slavery. He liberates the sinner from the slavery to sin, death, and the devil. He frees them to the, to the freedom of the children of God, right? God is not the oppressor. That's not how he uses power. He liberates. And when it comes to the issue of escalation, he does just the opposite, right? In Luke's gospel, Jesus tells this parable. Then Jesus told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in a vineyard, and he went to look for some fruit on it, but did not find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've come, been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? Sir, the man replied, leave it alone for one more year. I'll dig around it and fertilize it. If it bears fruit next year, fine. If not, then cut it down, right? So apparently this man has been coming to this fig tree and listen, he didn't just plant it and come to that year. The, the idea here is it's been planted and now it should be bearing fruit. And now for three years, in which it should have been bearing fruit, this guy has come to it. Now three years for a fruitless grown tree in your orchard is long enough, okay? If it doesn't bear fruit the first year, that's bad. You could cut it down right then if you wanted to. Just depends on what you want to do. You come back the second year, there's still nothing? <laughs> nothing? Not even a few? You, now you come back a third year, and there's nothing again. And you're like, dude, um, I'm sorry, are you a fruit tree? <laughs> and, then, and then listen, then he goes, you know what, cut it down. And then the, the husbandman says, no, look, let's dig around it and fertilize it and, and then give out one more year. Now think about this. Whose voice is the voice of God in this parable? Is it the landowner or is it the husbandman? See, it's both. The, it's, it's God's inner counsel. It's, and you see, the first step of judgment would have, is already gracious. The landowner is already gracious. He's already three times as gracious as is reasonable. And then he goes another huge step to say, not only will we wait one more year, that would have been very gracious. But he said, let's go the extra mile and sacrifice more from our resources. Let's actually invest more capital in this failure in the hopes that it might bear something. Right? That is as opposite of escalation as you can get. And listen, the Bible talks all about God disciplining us. He does. But whenever it talks about discipline, it's always the step right before judgment. And when discipline precedes judgment, but there's nothing more loving than that. And when you come to Jesus— he says this, 
Jesus called the disciples together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them, right? It's top-down, it's authoritative, boom. It's Rehoboam-like. But not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, because... Or just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Later on, Paul would comment on this kind of attitude in Jesus in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. He said, your attitude, meaning yours and mine, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the, que the question we need to ask is not, am I using my power in too hard or too soft a way? The question is, am I using the power that I have, the authority that I have, the way Jesus wants me to use it? Am I using it for redemptive ends? Am I using the power I have to provide for, protect, and nurture those that authority is over? Or to the ends to which that was given? The, the point is not to overcome the self-centered use of power with an other-centered use of power. The point is to overcome a self-centered use of power with a God-centered use of power— which will, which will in most cases very, very strongly be an other-centered use of power. And when we do that, people are going to really take notice of it. Let me just tell you a quick story. Tim Keller tells a story about a guy in New York City. He was in, he was in middle management in um, one of the corporations there. And there was a girl that was on his staff, and she made a mistake. And she made a job-ending mistake. And they were, in a, they were in a staff meeting, which she was in there, and he was in there, and some of the higher-ups were in there. And they said, okay, this happened. Who's going down for it? And the manager, who was a Christian, um, stepped in and took the blame for it. He said, listen, I didn't train her right. This is, this is, she's very talented and very competent. She does not overlook things. I apparently did not shepherd her and train her. This really should come to me, not to her. And he took the heat for it. And um, a, little, a little bit after this meeting, she ends up coming into his office and she says, listen, um, I have worked in a number of departments in this, co this company. I've seen a lot of managers do their work and I have never, ever seen anybody take the heat like that for somebody else when it was real heat. Why'd you do that? And he said, well, listen, I, um, I could afford to take the heat. You couldn't. Um, my career here is pretty secure. Yours isn't. So don't mention it. And she said, no, 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 no. Why did you do that? And, you know, he tried to evade it, and she pressed him, and he said, listen. He said, listen, if, if you're pressing me, I'll tell you. Listen, I'm a Christian. And um, my Savior absorbed punishment and wrath for me so that I could be free. He was willing to absorb, and I, and I just find in management that when I, when I absorb more pain than I inflict— that that tends to be redemptive. It in, in, in the larger things, it, t it tends to work out. And so I've tried, to, I've tried to do that, and you were just a recipient of that today. And she said, where do you go to church? 
because a, this kind of a use of power, even when it's not explicit, even when we don't say, I'm doing this because Jesus said to, if we just live like this in the office, in the school system, in our homes, in our marriages, in our, then it still is different. It will still be noticed. And it will oftentimes receive persecution because people just assume it's some kind of power grab and some kind of little game you're playing. And so when we think about this use of power, I think we need to look at six things really quickly and then we'll be done. The first is we should imitate God's use of power and authority as displayed in Jesus and not just rejoice in it. We should rejoice in how God displayed his power in Jesus, but we should also imitate it. The second is we need to accept a biblical doctrine of authority. The answer to bad authority is not no authority. The answer is a more redemptive use of authority, a more other-centered and God-centered use of authority. I'm sorry, I have these in different orders. Um, we, need to, we need to also listen to those we would normally ignore, which tend to be anybody who doesn't think just like us, so old people and young people, right? People that are older than us that have more experience and we assume have sold out or would be in charge if they were any good. I mean, if we're in charge, what are we, what are we tempted to think? We're in charge because we're the best, right? I'm in charge because I'm the most competent. So if these older people are trying to give me advice, it's because their day has passed and they don't really know anything. Um, they don't know any more than me. And so I should just do what I think. Or younger people, people who are subordinates in our organization, new employees, right? The whole reason they're subordinates is because they don't know squat. And the, what, one of the things that this is teaching is that really is folly to think that way. Folly to think that way. Younger people have eyes that can see on frequencies you don't see anymore. They have the ability to alert you to problems that you have you have just become accustomed to. And so Andy Stanley, a pastor at one of the largest church in America, every new employee three months in the organization fills out a critique of the organization. They don't receive they don't receive a critique of their job, their work. They receive a they get to critique the organization because he knows he's been there 50 years, he doesn't even see it anymore. He lives in the forest, he doesn't see the trees. Right? And older people have seen the cycles. They've seen how trajectories play out. They've got resources you don't have. And so it'd be great if we wouldn't let youth or stupidity or jadedness keep us from listening to the people we should listen to. The third thing is we need to be disciplined about the mockingbird concept. We really need to be disciplined about using the kind of imagination necessary to know where the other person is really coming from. If we don't, we will always just blow off people, and people don't like to be blown off. And that's not what God really wants us to do with them. Fourth, authority and power should cost you the person in authority. The Christian doctrine of authority is authority and power should cost you, not just other people. If your authority does not cost you humiliation and humility and persecution and so on, then you are probably shielding yourself in oppressive ways and escalating conflicts to push people back. And fifth, authority and power requires humility. And the 
motivation to do all of these things has to come from Christ himself. It has to come from God's greater use of authority, the inspiring power that comes from seeing how Jesus handled conflict, how he wielded his authority, and how he used his power. And if we will submit to God our use of power, we will find it greatly redeemed, much more useful, much more effective, much more honorable, much more truthful, much more gracious. gracious. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you'd, um, you'd be with us and you would help us to that you'd help us to submit areas to you that are the ones we most naturally shield from you. Help us to submit all of our use of our power and authority to you. Help us to use it as you would use it, as you would want us to use it. Help us to recognize the sacrifice necessary in positions of authority in the Christian church and to Christians in your church in all walks of life. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.